So, good morning, everyone. Um, I'm just going to go ahead and get started while our last guests are getting their coffee or tea, if that's okay. Um, this is recording, from what I understand. Um, there are some people that are going to try and hook on to the education program today on the internet. So, whenever, uh, not every time, but often when we give education programs in this room, we record it and we live stream it out onto the internet. So, it is possible to hook onto it and watch it from home or wherever you are. So, my name is Keston Blandon. I'm a psychologist and a researcher here at the Centers for Health and Aging. I specialize in dementias. Um, this is a general brain health program today that I'm doing as a volunteer for the Alzheimer's Association. I used to work for the Alzheimer's Association and now I volunteer for them. Um, so the Mass New Hampshire chapter, it's, this is their program. Um, and this is about memory loss and brain health and we're going to talk about um, exactly what memory loss is because there's some memory loss that's a part of normal aging and the early symptoms to Alzheimer's disease. I'll go through the different types of dementias. Um, I'm going to go through the components of a good diagnosis. If, if you or anyone that you know was concerned about your, your memory loss or any other symptoms. And then at the end, I'm going to go through lifestyle strategies to reduce risk factors. And I will go through some of the different risk factors for Alzheimer's and dementia as well. Ask any questions. As we're going along, if I know the answer, I'll give it to you. If I don't know the answer, I'll research it and give it to you, okay? So here are some uh, statistics about Alzheimer's disease. It's the most common cause of dementia among people 65 and older. And in a few moments, I'm going to go over the difference between Alzheimer's and dementia, okay? Alzheimer's is the type of dementia. And it's the most commonly diagnosed type of dementia. The prevalence rate right now is about 13% of people that are 65 and older. There is a form of younger onset Alzheimer's disease and this starts in people that are younger than 65 um, and it's the same pathology, it's the same disease, it just starts younger. But there's no, nowhere near as many of them as there are people that have Alzheimer's that are 65 and older. So the, the vast majority of cases of Alzheimer's are late onset or sporadic Alzheimer's and they're in the population that's 65 and older. So once people are 65 and, and beyond 65, that's the real age of risk for developing Alzheimer's disease. We have more than 5 million in our country right now um, with that disease. As I said, there are some people younger than that. They have a younger onset form, but it's the same disease. It's the same pathology in the brain. This is considered one of the public health crises of our time, which you probably are noticing. It's on the news a lot. Do you notice that? It's, it's, it's being talked about much more. Um, and that's because our population is aging, not only in this country, but globally, uh, and particularly industrial nations. Um, our populations are aging. So we have this big baby boomer population that a few years ago just started the oldest of that generation turned 65, so they're now moving into the age of risk, you know, 65 and older. Um, that population is about 78 million people. So that, that's a big, a big bump moving into that age of risk for Alzheimer's disease. And that's why we have these estimations of by 2030 that the um, population that's 65 and older will double and what that will mean by mid-century if we don't come up with a really good 
Um, I don't think anyone's expecting like a, a flat out cure, uh, but we are expecting that we'll be able to either prevent or significantly delay the progression of the disease. That's really what, what we're looking for. So that's why it's such a, um, a big deal for our country and others as well, other countries as well. I suspect that this, this laptop's going to be asking me those questions throughout the... So there are, as I said, there are normal age-related changes to memory and cognitive function as we age. It can take longer to retrieve information, just to access information, um, occasionally forgetting things, particularly names. Names, names are the biggest complaint um, for people that are aging. Uh, trouble finding the right word, um, misplacing things. That's all quite normal. Um, nothing, nothing in and of itself to be worried about. Uh, what happens as we age is basically that the brain ages. So just as the rest of our body ages and we, we allow for that, like we don't freak out that our faces are aging or that we get gray hair or that our metabolism changes or we don't have as much energy, our eyes, our hearing. Right, we sort of expect all of this as we age, and it may frustrate us, but we don't really worry about it. But those are things that we can see or that are immediately manifest. We don't see the aging of the brain, except that it, it shows up in our mind. It shows up in our memory, what's called our working memory. So that's, for, with normal age-related changes, that's what's really happening. Your brain is aging just like the rest of your body is aging. And as it ages, it's just not working as fast. But that in and of itself is nothing wrong. It just might be a little frustrating. Um, it's just that it slows down a little, right? It's not as sharp. And there has been some research on, on the brain and aging that a part of why it possibly slows down, they're thinking now, is that we've collected so much more information. So our knowledge base becomes much deeper and richer, and it takes longer to work through all that stuff, <laughs> right, when we're, when we're looking for things. So there's a lots of reasons why there are normal age-related changes that aren't really anything to worry about. So now we'll start talking about some of the differences between age-related changes and dementias and Alzheimer's. And I want to go um, through first here, but the difference between Alzheimer's and dementia, I get asked this a lot. This is a very common question. So dementia is not officially a diagnosis, although a lot of people get that diagnosis. It's the way that health professionals walk and talk about it, because it's, it's easiest. Um, but dementia is actually, it's an umbrella term. And it indicates a set of symptoms, a certain set of symptoms of progressive cognitive decline. There are many reasons someone can have dementia. Alzheimer's disease is the type of dementia, and it's the most commonly diagnosed type. There are other types of dementia, and I'll go over those in a moment. Um, so, and, and the diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease or any, any of the dementias are made at certain levels of dysfunction. So when two or more cognitive symptoms, and we'll be going through what different cognitive symptoms are, are at the level of dysfunction that they're impairing your ability to carry out your daily life, your daily tasks, that's a criteria for the diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease or, or other dementias. And so sometimes when people are going for a diagnosis and they've noticed different memory problems or cognitive problems, and the doctor will say, I can't give you a diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease. 
Sometimes that will confuse people because what we're used to is either you have cancer or you don't, you have a condition or you don't. But Alzheimer's disease and dementias are on a spectrum of degeneration. So it would be good for you if you or someone you know or care about is in that situation to ask the doctor, well, do you see symptoms that might progress to that? What do you think about that? Because it just may be that they can't give an actual diagnosis that day, but that doesn't mean that you may not have things to be thinking about. Does that make sense? Okay. So different types of dementia. Alzheimer's disease, as I, as I said, is the most commonly diagnosed type uh, by far. Most of the time that I meet someone with dementia, they have the first, they have one of the first two here or both of them together. They have Alzheimer's disease or vascular dementia. And mixed dementia, the third one, is those two together because they tend to present together. That's what we're finding out from research, autopsy research. Um, a high percentage of people who had Alzheimer's disease diagnosed when they were living under autopsy research studies, we see that they have not only Alzheimer's pathology but also vascular dementia pathology. So they tend to present together and that's called mixed dementia. But in the general population you may not hear that much that's used more in research. Um, vascular dementia is um, strokes and blood vessel disease and, and problems with blood flow. Um, it sometimes has been called multi-infarct dementia. This is where a series of tiny, tiny strokes are happening very deep in the brain. And they're so deep in the brain and they're so small that the person isn't aware of it as each one is happening like a larger stroke. But as each of these tiny strokes happen, they damage brain matter. And as the strokes occur, more and more brain matter is damaged until there's enough damage that there's a, a, relative, a correlated cognitive symptom from wherever that is in the brain. That's vascular dementia. Is that TIAs? Is that a little strange? I think that's a part of that, can be a part of it, but it's not always, vascular dementia isn't always that, but yes. How would a person know when they're having one of those strokes? Well, these tiny ones, you wouldn't. Um, you wouldn't until they had built up enough that there's cognitive symptoms. So you would have different cognitive problems depending on where the strokes are happening. So it might be with language, might be with memory, it might be with uh, confusion, it might be personality problems or, or differences. So depending on where the strokes were happening and building up, you would have a cognitive symptom. You wouldn't necessarily suffer from, from pain or no. something of that nature? No, and that's what's difficult about it. You have to wait until they cause enough damage that you see a symptom. Whereas with larger strokes, you do know. Yeah, people do know. Then there are frontotemporal dementias, Lewy body disease, Parkinson's dementia. These three are, are considered part of what we call the dementias. <laughs> There's many, many dementias. Um, but these are the ones that we see most typically. The last three here are um, less common th than the first two. Frontotemporal dementias um, are typically language problems and personality problems. They tend to happen in younger adults, say in their 50s. Lewy body disease tends to, um, is related to Parkinson's dementia. They're the same pathology, but they start in different parts of the brain. Um, Parkinson's disease, which we've all heard about, about, oh, they think about 25 to 40%, that's a big range, but 25 to 40% of people with Parkinson's disease 
the pathology will move out into the cortex and becomes Parkinson's dementia. So not everyone with Parkinson's disease has Parkinson's dementia. Lewy body disease tends to start um, typically with hallucinations or personality or motor function problems because it's related to Parkinson's. So I just gave you a lot of information. Um, there's not going to be a test, <laughs> but what I do want you to understand is that what makes all of these dementias different is that they, there's an, a different underlying physiological pathology in the brain, and they tend to start in different parts of the brain so they have different presenting symptoms. What makes all of these the same is that they're progressive dementias. So they may have different pathologies and they start in different parts of the brain, but eventually they move, they progressively move throughout the brain. Okay, so even though most of the time we're de I'm dealing with Alzheimer's disease, once you know what someone's dealing with, you know that they're dealing with a dementia and then you just deal with how to adapt to that, how to cope with that, how to understand that. So because Alzheimer's disease is by far the most diagnosed um, in the population that's 65 and older, I'm gonna now talk about Alzheimer's disease. Although when we start talking about cognitive symptoms, these are cognitive symptoms that can show up in other dementias as well. Uh, but the hallmark, the characteristic presenting symptom of Alzheimer's disease is short-term memory loss. Not always, there are some presentations of Alzheimer's disease that don't necessarily start there, but most often it does. Alzheimer's disease tends to start in the part of the brain that's deep in the middle of our brain. It's a tiny structure. It's called the hippocampus. And the hippocampus is necessary for encoding short-term memories. Okay, what you had for breakfast this morning. You remember that? This is not a test. No, <laughs> I don't want to freak everybody out. <laughs> but if you do, you can thank your hippocampus. That, that's what it's about, so short-term memory. Um, and to access short-term memory, we need the hippocampus. Once a memory has been indexed or coded to be stored long-term, then it's sent out and it's stored in the cortex, and the access to that is direct from the frontal lobes, from our intentions, or something provokes you know, our memory, like music or, or something else. That is why someone with Alzheimer's disease will ask you the same thing over and over and over, or they can't remember what they just watched or what they just read or the conversation you had, but they remember all of their older memories. And that's because the access to their older autobiographical memories is direct from the frontal lobes. You don't need the hippocampus, okay? So that's the difference. And they can, um, you know, enjoy and access their, their longer-term memories for a long time. Those tend to be the last, the long-term memories tend to um, not be impacted until far, far into the disease. So it's, it's an area that they can access and talk about. But that's the, that's the hallmark presenting symptom. It typically shows up with a lot of repetition. Repeating things, asking for things again, um, just not remembering something that, that someone just did, or not remembering the whole thing, not imprinting the whole memory. There can also be challenges in planning or solving problems that may show up early. Um, this is really uh, sometimes with like what we call serial processing, complex tasks. 
these are tasks, and I don't mean um, rocket science when I say complex tasks. I mean like following a recipe, doing the laundry, doing something that has a series of steps that must be done in a certain order, right? TV remotes, which I still can't figure out um, <laughs> how to work those things. I'm serious. I'm, I'm technologically challenged. Um, that type of stuff. So planning, solving problems, balancing checkbooks, doing things that you used to do. So sometimes there can be difficulty, which is completing familiar tasks, where that serial processing of, of what goes after what's the next step to do, or understanding the, the task as a whole starts to break down and, and there can be confusion. There can be confusion with time or place, particularly earlier on um, if you go to a new place with traveling. Sometimes, um, you know, I've, I've heard from families quite often over the years that one of their first clues was that their loved one had Alzheimer's disease was when they traveled somewhere and they would be somewhere unfamiliar and there would be a lot of stimulus or a lot of movement going on and the person would get confused. They would just be, for a little while, disoriented somewhere new. So sometimes that can happen. There could be trouble understanding visual images or spatial relationships. Frankly, um, this I've noticed anecdotally this tends to come later. Um, but what this means is that there's a part of our brain, it's right up here, it's called the parietal lobe, parietal cortex top of our head right here. This part of your brain um, is very automatic and involuntary. And this part of our brain and mind uh, organizes our body in, in space and relates us to space and moving objects. It's actually pretty amazing. So it's this part of your brain that if I'm going to throw a ball to Bill, his brain is calculating the trajectory, the velocity, and where to put out his hand to catch it. Okay, um, it, it, it um, relates my body to this stand here, so I'm not always walking into this stand. I understand how my body relates to it, the depth perception. This, this part of our brain and mind calculates shadows for depth perception, so you know how far away something is. It, it um, understands the contrast between colors and shapes, so I know where the door is in that wall seems pretty simple to us, right? Mm -hmm. But I've met people with it, um, more advanced Alzheimer's that when I asked them to have a seat, they went head first into the chair. And that's because this part of the brain is, is breaking down for them, and they don't have a sense of, of how their body's related to shapes and what those shapes are about and how they fit into it and what it meant. They know it's a chair, because I said, please sit in the chair. They know that that means they need to be in the chair somehow. But there's a, a confusion or, or of your relationship to space and to objects and how they work and how to move about them. There can be um, presenting with new words, new problems with words in speaking or writing, so just comprehension. Um, or in speaking, uh, what can be more common in, in speaking in early symptom is describing around words. So, and particularly nouns, nouns seem to be a thing. Names and nouns tend to be a thing as we age. So this sometimes happens to, in normal aging too. I can't remember the right word, you know, that tip of the tongue. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, it will start to happen more consistently or repetitively if it, it, with, with Alzheimer's disease. Um, 
Um, so sometimes you'll find that people will start describing around words. So for instance, if they want to talk about, they were recently at the hospital, they might say, you know, you know that place where people go when they're sick? Mm -hmm. Like they just start to describe mm -hmm. around it because they just can't access the word anymore or as easily. Misplacing things, and, and the key is here because we all misplace things and particularly if you're a little bit spacey. Um, <laughs> see, I'm, I'm blaming all of this on my personality issues. Um, we all misplace things and particularly if we're not paying attention, we can't, I locked myself out of my apartment this morning, so I wasn't paying attention. You get in your head and you're not paying attention. Um, the key here is, is not being able to retrace your steps. Right? Another key is that sometimes you mis um, someone with Alzheimer's will misplace something in a totally illogical place. Right? So it's not just that you put your keys down on the front table instead of on the hook yeah. in the kitchen. <coughs> it's that you put your keys in the freezer type of thing. It, 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 sometimes it can be very odd. There can be poor judgment or not understanding social context in particular with, with judgment issues, um, saying things that are inappropriate, um, not wearing the right clothes um, for the season, for the weather, for the occasion. Um, I had, um, I, I, I worked with a couple years ago where the, the gentleman that had Alzheimer's, it was at a younger onset, but one of the first clues they had that something was really wrong with it, he racked up a lot of credit card debt. He was just like impulsively buying all this stuff that he didn't need and it was unlike him. And so things like that can sometimes show up show up first. He, he just wasn't using his judgment right, he was making, being much more impulsive and, and not understanding um, that he didn't have the money for that, like not making those connections. So this one here, this withdrawal from work or social activities, I, I want to point out and stress for you because um, this is actually quite common as a very early symptom. So typically what we're looking for with Alzheimer's, what we hear about in the public and in the media is the short-term memory or misplacing things in the free, putting your keys in the freezer. These are dramatic things. They're, they're accurate. They're true. They are early symptoms. But I can't tell you how often you hear, once you, I'll talk to a family and they have a diagnosis of a loved one and I'll talk about this withdrawal from work or social activities, withdrawal from conversations. And they'll go, oh, oh, well that happened before we started to see the memory stuff. But you know, we allow for that. When there's a behavior change, we allow that for people and we make up reasons for it. Well, they were a little depressed. There was other stuff going on in their life. They were getting bored. Oh, you know, just different things were going on. And, and we sort of allow that for people. And we don't think too much of it. But it can be depression. So we talk about here changes in mood or personality. Depression is very, very common. We're discovering now in research very early on in the disease, possibly even before there are real noticeable cognitive problems. We're not exactly sure of why that is. It's probably a combination of things. So probably there are just physiological changes in the brain that can bring about a depression. <coughs> but there's probably also just a, a, an apathy <coughs> as well uh, from physiological changes. And then there may be that the person is starting to feel very subtly and subjectively some, some deficits. And, and it's depressing them. And it's making them withdraw from, from things that they used to do so that their deficits aren't going to become noticeable. Because it's quite frightening right, 
to, to be feeling, sensing those things. So all of those things are probably at work. So it's just something to think about um, if, if you notice that in anyone. Any questions on the, on the symptoms? Um, I was thinking when, when you were talking about the, the, uh, uh, the memory part, yeah. that sometimes I've noticed that when I'm stressed, mm. it seems to be a lot worse. <laughs> I've known to be in conversation with somebody and almost every <coughs> sentence, I'm just not remembering. Yeah. And I know, I know the, the worst and I just can't pull yeah. it up. Yeah. So stress is a big one. It should be, I should have it on this list here. Stress and anxiety. So stress and anxiety, particularly when it's chronic, um, really tends to fragment the mind mm -hmm. if it's too high of a level. So stress is very good for us in the sense that we need stress to be motivated. Stress is, to a certain level, is good. Um, but it reaches a, um, a level where it's too much, and then it becomes toxic, particularly for the mind. It tends to fragment the mind. So okay. that can be a thing. You know what else um, can be a thing is that it says medication side effects, even over-the-counter. You take any over-the-counter sleep aids? Anybody? Not anymore. <laughs> Me either. Um, <laughs> Over-the-counter sleep aids, not all of them, but most of them suppress a neurotransmitter called acetylcholine. Acetylcholine is a part of the sleep-wake cycle. It wakes up our brain. So sleep aids will suppress that so that the, the brain will start to go to sleep, feel sleepy. Acetylcholine is also happens to be necessary in the hippocampus for encoding short-term memory. So you're also suppressing the neurotransmitter that's needed for memory, right? And sometimes, and people will react differently, yes? There's another uh, thing too, I was on uh, antidepressants some uh, years ago, mm -hmm. and what I found out was most uh, medications are tested only after six, uh, up to six months. Mm -hmm. I have been on it for about two years, mm -hmm. and I started noticing that I just couldn't remember. I was sleeping all the time. There was a bunch of different things. Mm -hmm. And I got to the point where I said, wait a minute, this is the, that's, that's the antidepressant. I got off it in two weeks, three weeks, it was cleared up. Yeah. So these are um, a list of other possible causes of dementia-like symptoms. So all of those symptoms that I just went through, brain is a very sensitive organ. It's extremely complex, right? It, it's amazing that it works as well as it does for as long as it does. I mean, wow. Um, but medication side effects there. Medications impact all of us differently. So you may have friends that are on antidepressants. You may have friends that um, take over-the-counter sleep aids, and they're fine. I was taking them rather, not every night, but rather consistently, because I'm a light sleeper and I was under a lot of stress because they work me like a dog here. And I, <laughs> and I wasn't sleeping well, so I was, I was using them more. And I found a lot of, like my brain was really foggy and slow, and of course I work in dementia, so I was freaking out. <laughs> um, and then I researched it and I, I went off of them and I bounced right back, it was fine, but for me, I just happen to be particularly sensitive to that. You were sensitive yeah, to I those antidepressants. And things can change over time. So you can um, have, say, taken an antidepressant at a certain time in your life and it was fine. And then as you age and things change for you, different health conditions. So these are things to think about, about what's, what's impacting your brain. Anything that impacts your brain impacts your mind. Okay. 
So there's a lot of different things that can give us dementia-like symptoms. And the fact, this is not an exhaustive list. It's the more common ones. And the, but the fact that it exists um, is why if, if you or anyone you know has concerns, you should go get checked out. Because what a diagnosis will do, and I'll go over that in a few moments, it will rule out all of these other things because there could be other things going on. Brain tumor, hydroencephalus is where there's a buildup of fluid on the brain from the ventricles, and it, it pushes the ventricles into the brain matter and can damage it and cause cognitive symptoms. Thyroid dysfunctions are known to have cognitive issues. A slow thyroid slows down the mind. Thyroids use, use a big part of metabolism. A hyperthyroid speeds up and fragments the mind. But Vitamin. Still, uh, yeah. still um, the doctors are the ones who tell us that we should have an aspirin every day. Mm -hmm. Now, how does that fit in? As far as I know, there's there's not a big relationship there with with brain health. Um, it that's in as far as impacting your brain. So, did, if you have you um, has it been suggested that you have an aspirin every day for heart? No, just heart general. health, just in general. Well, that's good. That's good, but in aspirin itself, um, I don't know of any like real clear links with brain health, but it's helping things that could hurt your brain, like clots or um, cholesterol and heart health and all of that. Yep. Let me go back to hypo. Hypothyroidism. Yep. So a hypo, a slow thyroid. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm taking medication for hypothyroid. Okay, so, so if your thyroid is um, managed with medication, then it should be totally fine. And hypothyroidism, let's say it wasn't managed, um, that doesn't mean that it's a risk factor for dementia. That means it's going to give you dementia-like symptoms. So if you weren't on medication and you, you have a slow thyroid, you'll probably experience um, cognitive focus and attention problems and some working memory problems. Right, it slows the... Yeah. yeah, but it's not a risk factor. Okay, yes, yep. Is there any uh, thought, we've just, uh, because of heart disease, become vegans, which increases your, um, the health of your vessels. Yes. And yeah. the inference was it would also help your brain, mm -hmm. not only your heart, but your brain, because mm -hmm. the circulation would be better. And, mm -hmm. I mean, is that something Well, it makes sense. To, to me, from what I know of brain health, and we'll go through the um, lifestyle strategies and, and diet and eating more <coughs> vegetable-based diet is one of them, um, particularly because of the heart connection. So there's a direct connection, a direct relationship between heart health and brain health. There is. Um, yes, and so there may be other benefits as well, okay. just I'm not as aware of them, yep. being a vegan. Yep. I have read, however, uh -huh. of many instances where the brain is made up of fat and cholesterol. Mm -hmm. And if we are depriving our bodies of fat and cholesterol, we're depriving our brain of the food that it needs to survive. Mm -hmm. There's a very interesting book out um, by a neurologist. Mm -hmm. who Depriving our brain of what? Fat and cholesterol. Otherwise, yeah. a vegan diet might not help your brain. So <laughs> eat plenty of nuts. We do. <laughs> fat, animal fat too. Oh, animal fat? Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, I tried a vegan diet yeah. for a little over a year and found that there was something missing in my diet. So I went back with just small amounts of, of uh, 
you know, and it could just be because I'm I, for 65 years I was used to having meat in my diet, sure. um, yeah. but yeah. I limited to like uh, chicken and maybe an occasional mm. pork uh, pork thing or something, but no no red meat. Right. right. Well, I'll tell you, um, diet nutrition is not my specialty necessarily, but we know from all of the cultures that are involved in the world, and they all have, I mean, vastly different diets. There are many different diets that human beings can have and stay healthy. Okay, so I'll tell you, and this is my personal bias, but I am, I do have a PhD. Um, <laughs> that processed food seems to be a big deal. You know, that, that processed food. Mm -hmm. seems to be a big deal. So when they talk about the diets that they do, um, you know, that they test in research for all different types of health, cardiovascular health, cancer, neuro, you know, brain health, um, eating less processed food is, is mm -hmm. always a good thing um, and part of a really healthy diet, eating raw foods and fresh foods. <coughs> Have they done any studies in the vitamin D since so many people, they've, be uh, they've become very aware of it last couple of years that so many people especially in the northern regions mm. are very deficient I mean my doctor had to had to uh, prescribe me vitamin D up to a zoo mm. because I was so low on it yeah you know I, I I'm not I haven't read it so I can't speak about it mm -hmm. but I know that there's a lot going on with vitamin D right now uh, you hear about that a lot not only in the media but there's I think there's a good deal of research Going on with it. I was but just wondering I'm if that also had I can't really speak. But yeah. did you have a question? Yes, I did. About the doctor, uh, what kind of doctor do you do you go to? Well, I'm going to go through the diagnostics in a moment. So you commonly than, than younger adults have lower B vitamins. So it's just something to, to think about. And when you go to your doctor, like an annual exam, they're probably checking these things, but just um, it's common for older adults to have some lower B vitamins in, in their body. And then the other thing I want to mention here is infections. So, and I mean simple infections. Um, these infections, and particularly, this is particularly uh, more so for older adults, can really impact the brain and cognition, and particularly in what in delirium, which can mask dementia sy symptoms or um, mimic dementia symptoms. So just things to think about. What, it, what I want you to take away from this slide is that there are lots of things that can impact the brain and therefore the mind, and if you or anyone you know has any concerns, it's worthwhile getting checked out and getting things ruled out, okay? So a, di a diagnostic process. We suggest, you know, it's always easiest to start with your primary care physician, your, your general physician. Um, not everybody has one. I mean, I, I've met lots of people, particularly here in New England, you get, you know, people who don't go to doctors for years and years. Um, I was talking to a woman years ago who lived alone and lived up in North Haverhill and um, was a hearty older woman and had lived alone for a long time and was experiencing some, some memory problems. So I went up to the senior center to talk to her 
And I said, well, you know, go to your physician. And she's like, I haven't been to a doctor in probably 30 years. <laughs> and she didn't plan on going to one. So not everybody has one. Or you may not have one that you really like or you were thinking of changing or, or whatever. Um, but we say start with your primary care physician. They'll, they're going to do a lot of the groundwork. A big part of the diagnostic process is um, ruling out other conditions like we were just talking about, thyroid, vitamin deficiencies, infections, things like that. But one of the most important parts of a really good diagnostic process is not all of our technology, right? The MRI, the PET scan, the neuropsych test. It's the full medical history. And that's because Alzheimer's disease and the, the other dementias as well, they have a certain onset. They have a certain way of presenting themselves Right? They have a certain story. And your doctor is going to be looking for that because hydroencephalus or a brain tumor might show cognitive symptoms like a, a dementia will early on, but they're going to present differently. So in general, Alzheimer's disease is what's called insidious onset. It's a very slow buildup, very slow, but it's progressive and consistent but you have to really be tracking it and paying attention. A brain tumor, hydroencephalus, things like that tend to have much more sudden onset, right? So these are just things in general that they'll be looking for, yeah. Will an MRI show the difference between vascular dementia and Alzheimer's? Yeah, vascular dementia on an MRI, you'll see, if you have vascular dementia, you'll see all these white dots throughout the brain and that's where there's brain damage. So there's these tiny little strokes happening. Um, Alzheimer's disease, so this is not um, this is not my area, I'm not a neurologist, but I think they're doing better and better on the MRIs, but you have to, early on they may not see the atrophy, they may not see the, the difference, but um, I think they're, they're getting more and more sensitive with that, particularly around the hippocampus and seeing shrinkage in the hippocampus. Um, and then PET scans, I don't know how many clinics, it's not necessarily in general care, um, but there are PET scans where they can put in a tracer that will attach to beta amyloid, to one of the pathologies in the brain, um, and that will light up and so they'll know you have what's called an amyloid burden, so you have the beta amyloid in your brain. So we didn't go over that, do, do you guys know about plaques and tangles? I'll go over that very quickly so you just understand the biology of Alzheimer's disease. There's two primary pathologies that they look for. So the, the Alzheimer's brain, there's a lot of different pathology or pathological processes going on. It's, it's complicated. But there's two that, that really mark the, the brain as, as being under the influence or having Alzheimer's disease. The first one is beta amyloid plaques. This is a buildup of a protein called beta amyloid. Um, and they, the protein will start clumping together into these plaques and they'll disrupt communication, they'll get in between the, the brain cells um, and those will start building in the brain. We know, and this is, a, this is not controversial, we know that beta amyloid plaques start in the Alzheimer's brain 10 to 20 years before symptoms. So when I say insidious onset, that's what I mean, very, very slow buildup. So they can do PET scans um, in research and in some clinics um, that puts a tracer into the bloodstream and that tracer 
will attach to beta amyloid protein. And so if you have plaques in your brain, it will show up, right? But you can have beta amyloid plaques in your brain and be cognitively normal. The other, but I'm sorry, but if you have them and you're cognitively normal, normal does that mean that you will eventually develop? Maybe. Um, so I want to say yes, but that's what that's a huge area of research right okay. now. And if anyone's interested, they're doing a massive study in Boston with this. So, um, so let me go through the other pathology, and then I'll get back to that because that that's a part of research that they're really interested in people that are cognitively normal. And so, um, in, in research, and, and these people are you're actually necessary. For research right now. So the second, the, the second pathology in the Alzheimer's brain is a, um, called tangles, and that's the breakdown within brain cells of a different protein called tau protein. It's T-A-U. And this protein, we're not sure why, uh, but at some point it mutates and it breaks down and the, and the, the brain cell shreds or dies. So the large-scale cell death that leads to the progressive cognitive symptoms that we can track happens from tau protein. There is some relationship, and we don't know what it is, we think, between the buildup of beta amyloid and the mutation of tau protein. So you can have a buildup of beta amyloid for years and tau protein is not mutated yet. So we're, so because we know that people, that older, there are a, a number of older adults that have beta amyloid plaques in their brain but are cognitively normal, they're becoming, that population is becoming very, very interesting to researchers because the idea now is that we'll be able to intervene on the progression of the disease in people that have beta amyloid plaques but have not mutated tau protein yet. We want to stop it there because you can live with beta amyloid plaques and be cognitively normal. So that's, yeah. There's a member of our church, she's 50 mm -hmm. years old. And mm. she has these memory problems. I said, oh, I can relate. I know what you're talking about. But I said, but you shouldn't be having it. I should be having it. I mean, right. the memory problems. I can't remember this. I don't know what I said. She said, yeah. 50 yeah. years old. So yeah. she's got a long ways to go. And it's because of this amyloid plot. Yeah, could be. Um, it, we tend to get earlier diagnoses in the disease with people that are younger because it is unusual. They, they, they will think. You know, there's subtle symptoms at first, but they'll think, I'm 50, I shouldn't be, yeah. you know, that should be happening more, it's more normal when I'm 70. So they tend to be more preventative and proactive, and they get earlier diagnoses because, because they're younger and, and they're not expecting it. Sorry for it. Yeah, it, that's, a, that's a rough yeah. road. So is the tau protein then more, that's the one that's more indicative of the real underlying issues? Sort of, yeah. There's a lot going on. So there's um, also insulin problems, uh, glucose uptake in the Alzheimer's brain that starts early. There are some researchers calling it diabetes three. It's okay. such a big part of it. Inflammation plays a huge role in Alzheimer's disease. And we know this um, from a rheumatoid arthritis studies where there was one very large study uh, of people that had rheumatoid arthritis that took anti-inflammatories for years and years, you know, to help them with their rheumatoid arthritis, and they found as a side effect from the research study, they weren't looking for this, that those people had a greatly decreased risk for dementia. Yeah. Mm. So inflammation plays some role too. So it's really, 
it's really complicated about why do the, the amyloid plaques start and why does the tau protein mutate and why does the frontotemporal dementias have a diff also have a mutation of tau but without beta amyloid plaques and it's it's very complicated but the plaques and tangles those two proteins are the characteristic pathologies of Alzheimer's disease that that diagnose Alzheimer's disease from a brain perspective okay how, how do they um, I know in in my family's case a severe infection caused dementia which later went away oh, okay is that unusual yeah uh, well yes but I mean you hear of that so that's not a progressive dementia that's no. dementia like symptoms from a severe, you have a severe infection. infection right 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 and that's why people want to get checked out so if you're having symptoms something like that it could be something else that's causing dementia like symptoms or a mm -hmm. temporary time dementia is officially progressive cognitive decline so something like um, an infection or hydroencephalus wouldn't be considered officially a dementia. It's dementia-like symptoms, but the, the symptoms overlap with dementia. I see. Yeah. So this is the diagnostic process. What's really important is this full medical history because the doctor wants to figure out, is there progression or is this normal aging, or is it something else? Is this indicating to me that maybe there's, there might be a brain tumor or a buildup of fluid or an infection or, or something else? Is this delirium? Is this depression? Is this dementia? They tend to overlap. I, I've given talks on that. They, those three tend to overlap. What's really important with a full medical history when you go to your primary care, if you're the person that's suffering from some memory loss or cognitive symptoms, you need a good historian with you. That's what we call it, a good historian. It's probably your spouse <laughs> or adult <laughs> child or good friend. Um, someone who lives with you, someone who knows you daily, someone who can um, you know, help fill in the gaps. Because if you're having memory problems, you're not gonna be what's called the best historian of your symptoms, right? So, you need, you, so it's good to have someone go with you. If you don't, do you have a primary care? Yeah, if you don't, um, or for some reason you can't access them or whatever, that's going to be a problem. You can always call memory clinics. There are memory clinics. We have one here at Dartmouth. There's one in um, Burlington, Southie in the Manchester, Nashua area. There are memory clinics. Um, Bennington, Vermont. You know, they're in larger towns or small cities here in New England. So you can always call a memory clinic and refer yourself. So, for instance, the memory clinic at Dartmouth most often takes referrals from primary care physicians referring their patients. So they'll do the, the blood and urine tests and rule out all these other things that we were talking about. They'll take the medical history and if they still feel that there's more to do, they'll send you to a memory clinic with a specialist. But you could also call the memory clinic as an individual and refer yourself. You can also do that. So um, start with your primary care, but you, you may not be able to and you, you may not have to. And then the neuropsychological exams, I'll go over that for just a moment. Um, sometimes people think like that they're not as important, but they can be very important for you. So the neuropsych exams are very involved and they can be laborious and they can take a long time and be complicated and they can cause a lot of stress for people. So with that said, <laughs> I still want you to go do it. With that said, um, what's great about neuropsych exams is that they really isolate each cognitive domain or function and show what your baseline is, 
how well each function is operating. So they separate it right out so that if you do have any problems in the future, you have a baseline. And so you know if something's progressing, right? Because tracking the progression of like one cognitive function of attention or language or working memory or something like that, it, you, our minds and our lives are messier than that. It can be hard to isolate them, but the neuropsych test will, will isolate each one. And they can tell you, yes, this is progressing or oh, it's really not progressing that much. Okay, so, so for instance, you may have some cognitive symptoms and you take some neuropsych tests and you have your baseline on each function and then some things happen to you over the next six months or nine months and you feel as though one cognitive symptom is really progressing and you're very nervous. But they can do the neuropsych exams and compare it with the first baseline and see it's not progressing that much. So probably what's happening, it might be something else, medications, stress, some, some other condition or something else, okay? So that's part of the diagnostic um, oh, come on. process. There we go. So risk factors, so by far, by far, the biggest risk factor is aging. Bummer. So we're seeing it a lot more because of aging. Because yeah. we age much. Yes. Yes. And, and also, it's it's more in the public eye, and people are talking about it, and we have better diagnoses. And you know, once um, once a phenomenon or a condition becomes better diagnosed and has better criteria for it, you see it popping up all over the place, like autism. You know, years ago, autism, Asperger's, it seemed so rare. Now we're finding out that it possibly is not. That's not because people are suddenly developing much more. We have much more defined criteria for what it is, right? So that's, that's happened with Alzheimer's disease and other diseases over the years, too. At first, the criteria for what was Alzheimer's disease was rather nebulous, and, and as the years has gone on, it's become much, much clearer. So you can single, you can label more people with that. And then we're also diagno diagnosing it more. Our population is aging, and so you're seeing more prevalence of it. So it's several things coming together. Mm -hmm. yeah. But aging is, is um, by far the biggest risk factor. 90, 95% of all cases of Alzheimer's disease occur in the population that's 65 and older. So the younger onset, the, the younger cases are more dramatic. Sometimes we hear about those because they're more dramatic. But most of them are, are um, with population that's aging. There's a wonderful movie that I saw about two years ago that uh, uh, where the Alzheimer's patient actually is the one who's speaking. Mm. Something called nice. Alice something. I'm not sure exactly oh. now what the name was. Oh. Loving Alice or... or oh, I, uh, I think I've heard something like that. Yeah, it, There's it's a, lot a fantastic movie. Yeah. Um, I encourage you, I don't know if we have a flyer in here, um, I could get you one on your way out if you're interested or, or just check back with us. In November, the Centers for Health and Aging is hosting a pre-screening of a, of a documentary called The Genius of Marion. We're going to hold it at the Black, Visual, Black Family Visual Arts Center in Hanover. Um, and we're going to have a reception at, at first. It'll be like a really nice party, but this is a, a well-acclaimed um, and, and it's won a lot of awards, a documentary about a woman who, whose mother was an artist and her mother had Alzheimer's disease and she was um, in her 60s and she was, 
organizing her mother's life and, and her art. Her mother had passed away, and she was diagnosed with younger onset mm. Alzheimer's. And her son is a documentary filmmaker, so he made a, a film of his mother. And it's we're playing that, we're screening that for the public. What is it? In November. It's called, when is it? Or it's uh, when, Wednesday, November 12th. And we'll be putting out promotional material soon. Um, on that, so check back with us. Are you all on our email list or mailing list for newsletter? Okay, because we'll we'll send out promotion on it then. It's free, but you'll need to register um, just so that because we have a limited number of seats. Although the the theater seats like almost 250, so it'd be great if we filled it. But I don't know. But um, there's a lot. There. I saw one recently called Alive Inside. It's not released for the public yet. I, I saw it in Concord uh, last week, and then I spoke on a panel about it. it th this is about a music and memory movement that's happening in long-term care facilities. They're finding that for people with dementia, and I mean advanced, like advanced, really advanced, like not recognizing their children anymore, advanced. They can set up iPods with music from their childhood and their younger adult years and then play it for them and they can access memories, they start talking, they start dancing. It, like, the impact of music on the brain is amazing. It, it's incredible, it's incredible. So that's another one to look for. Is there uh, some, uh, something like this going on at Dartmouth? Uh, so I saw, the, I hope so. <laughs> I saw this film, I think a week or two ago and it's just so, dramatic. Um, when it is released to the public, I'm going to see if we can also screen it. Uh, it it's so amazing what it does for people. Um, that I spoke to um, the young woman, Kim Bettis, who runs the Memory Cafe, Dr. Santulli's Memory Cafe. Kim. Um, yes, Kim. Yeah. I spoke to her about it. She's interested in, I want to see if we can get a little bit of funding to get some iPods and, and build a big library of, of music and, and, you know, have have the participants at the memory cafe at least, um, you know, have have their music on some days and, and see what that does for them. I don't know if there are any facilities in our area that are using it. I would imagine there are some. Um, on the panel that I was on in Concord, there was a woman that was a part of a facility I think in like the uh, Keene area, and they were incorporating this music program. To their facilities, so it's it's a movement among long-term care facilities. What is the movement called? It's called Music and Memory. So you can look that up online, Music and Memory. Um, and it was um, one of the leaders of it is a social worker, a man named Dan Cohen, C-O-H-E-N, and he was traveling. He was working in nursing homes with dementia patients and I can't remember how he stumbled upon this but he stumbled upon this relationship to music and just started giving music to people and it's it will blow you away <laughs> if and when you see this documentary it was incredible what it did for people really incredible and such an easy um, you know cost-effective way to, to act, have, help to reach people because it can get hard to reach people it was amazing so there are other risk factors for Alzheimer's disease. Family history um, is one. Family history, uh, if you have a parent or a sibling who has or had Alzheimer's disease, that, um, that increases your risk factor. I think they estimate by like two or two and a half times. If you have other family members that had Alzheimer's disease, 
that's a part of your family history. It's probably important to you, but statistically, it doesn't it, it doesn't confer um, a, a risk factor. But it, it's a part of your family history. It's really parents and siblings. You're, that statistically they can figure out some increased risk factor. There are genetics involved, um, and I'm not going to get too deep into this because it's it's really complicated, the genetics of Alzheimer's disease, they found at least 15 genes, different discrete separate genes that are playing a part in the pathology process. So wow. this is not a case of just knocking out one gene. So you, you um, recently in the news in the last year, Angelina Jolie was in the news because she had that cancer, breast cancer gene, and so she just you know, decided she took a, a, a strong action against that because the risk was so high. And that's just one gene and there's a mutation and you know that you're going to get it. That's not how Alzheimer's disease works, unfortunately. There's many genes that are involved in the, in the processes that become pathological in the brain. So it's not as easy as just finding a gene and, and, and doing something about it or, or knocking it out, unfortunately. Um, head traumas. Increased risk factor for dementia, all the, de the football controversy, it's classic. Um, and the, the person who really uh, named and coined that pathological process and that disease is at BU, um, at Boston University. So that's definitely a, a risk factor. And then these other ones here, this is the heart-brain heart connection. Heart disease, hypertension, high cholesterol, diabetes, and these unmanaged, if these conditions are not managed, these all confer increased risk factor for Alzheimer's disease and also for vascular dementia. Right? So that's and these are ones that we can actually head trauma we can do something about too. But the first three that you know, we can't do anything about that. We you know that you're aging, you have the family that you have, you have the genetic burden that you have. Um, but these others are lifestyle strategies and research is showing that lifestyle strategies over the years, so as a way of living, not just eating well for six months so that you can you know, reach some health goal or, or whatever, not that that's bad, um, but this is really about the way that you live, the way that you, uh, your activity and your social engagement, your level of stress. Um, your exercise, your eating, all of that. This is important um, for brain health, for health in general, but particularly we're talking about brain health today. This is important. So when we talk about lifestyle strategies for brain health, you're, you're talking primarily about lifestyle strategies in general, not all of it, is for heart health. So if you remember nothing else, what's good for the heart is good for the brain. So the adult brain is about three pounds and even on a small person, three pounds is not a big percentage of body weight, right? But with each pump of blood, 25% of each pump of blood goes to feed the brain. So it's tiny. Our brains are small, right? They do all these amazing things. <laughs> but our brains are small. But they take a quarter of all of our blood to feed it. The, the brain, human brain consumes a vast amount of calories. It takes a lot of energy for the brain to, to do what it does. It's really a, a complex, amazing thing. I'm it sorry. really is. I was just I was just thinking, Helen, yes. how come how come my calories are always going to the wrong place? <laughs> <laughs> Why is it so amazing? I can't find my way home. Yeah. Um, 
So there's a direct connection, a direct relationship between heart health and brain health. And that's a big part of when you're thinking about adopting lifestyle strategies for brain health to reduce your risk factor for dementias and Alzheimer's, you wanna first think about the heart. There are other things to think about too, and I'll go over those in a moment. So first, um, just manage your numbers, your blood pressure, cholesterol, weight, diabetes. Diabetes is also a risk factor, like two, two and a half times diabetes gives increased risk factor for dementia, we know. Um, if these are managed, then it, it, it's thought to neutralize or equalize your risk factor, okay? Um, and then the first thing to start thinking about is, is your diet and how heart healthy your diet is. So this is not, I'm, I'm not an MD, so I'm not giving you um, medical advice or, or on, on what diet to, to have. I'm, I'm here just giving you an idea of the diets that have been researched and are known to be heart healthy. But if you have any other conditions, you should always talk to your doctor about you know exercise and, and, and diet and all of that. So the Mediterranean diet, we were talking earlier about diet and um, one component of heart healthy diets. So even though there's a vast amount of diets across the globe that, that human beings can do well on, um, it seems that fresh, fresh foods, and particularly having a vegetable base, so there's still meat in this diet, but um, it tends to be a lower fat diet, not a lot of processed food, um, low to moderate dairy, um, moderate, moderate meat, olive, olive oil is the predominant type of fat, which is a saturated fat. Okay, so just things to think about. Um, high consumption of fruit and vegetables and beans and grains and cereals, right? So, and those are uh, as fresh. So it's really about, um, again, the not, the not processed. So this diet has probably re received some of the most research of other types of diets. Um, and it is associated in research with a lower risk of some cancers, cardiovascular problems, and now they're associating it with a lower risk of neurodegenerative diseases, which is dementia's neurodegenerative disease as well. So something to think about. So let's talk about exercise, right? So I'm not telling you anything that's really novel, right? We've known this for years that to stay healthy and to age well, you wanna eat well, you wanna exercise. So the reasons behind exercising is that it really has a big impact on the brain. And even when there, and this is getting a lot of research, is exercise and brain health. And even in older adults that say haven't exercised when they were younger adults, didn't really have an active lifestyle, it makes a difference to start doing cardiovascular exercise. What makes a difference here is consistency. So you don't have to go out and start training for a marathon. You need to be consistently active, and that's where we talk about having it be a part of your lifestyle. Gardening, dancing, yoga, doing all different types of things. I went contra dancing this summer. You guys ever done contra dancing? Mm -hmm. Boy, was that fun. That was so fun. <laughs> it's a great exercise, and it was a blast. And talk about needing memory, <laughs> right? And all the steps, it was, it was fantastic. Um, just things like that, uh, doing different things within your life to stay healthy. Walking is one of the greatest exercises, right? Um, managing all of your risk factors, reducing stress. Stress, stress, as we talked about before on cognition, but stress has, once it's reached a, a point of no longer being healthy, once it gets too high, has a big impact on all of the body, <coughs> and particularly con consistent stress throughout life. 
So we need to learn to relax. But aerobic exercise that's consistent, it does a few things for the brain. It reduces stress, it reduces blood pressure, it increases blood flow to the brain. It, it's thought that it, um, even when they've measured in, ex in regular exercisers, um, metabolic processes, so just all of the complicated processes that the brain goes through, um, those tend to be more efficient in, in people that exercise regularly. And they've even found that regular exercise actually increases brain volume. So as we age, the brain shrinks. And this is normal. This is the part of normal aging and the cognitive changes, right? Um, you actually grow your brain through exercise. That's cool, right? And particularly the frontal lobes and the hippocampus. So that's really important when we're thinking about dementia. So aerobic exercise is really is a key to, to brain health, is staying, staying active. And then there's another component. So there's the physical component of diet and exercise. And then there's just staying engaged and active. So um, being socially active has, has been shown um, to ha have a good impact on health just in general and across the board, particularly <coughs> emotional health. Um, and so these are important. It reduces your risk factor as well. People that are more socially active and engaged in things and have more social support have lower stress, um, and they just tend to do better when life gets harder. Right? So that's something to, to be thinking about. Um, and then the mental engagement, if you're going to engage in mental exercises to keep your brain sharp, what you, there's a lot out there. Um, there's not a lot of research on them, but you know, someone in my position, we would never say don't do it. But what you want to think about from a brain health perspective, or when we're thinking about reducing risk factor for dementias, is you want to do things that involve a little bit of learning, um, not something that's become rope for you. So I always use my mom as an example. Here, my mom is a master crossword puzzle taker. <laughs> Right? She can do the New York Times crossword puzzle. She's just been doing them for decades. And she's really, really good at them. In ink. Yeah, she just is good. She's just like, you know, snap, snap, snap. So, but that, and she hates it when I tell her this, so I've stopped telling her this, but um, that, that isn't necessarily protective in a mental engagement way for her. Because those pathways in the brain, those connections <coughs> that get the crossword puzzle down are well-worn paths. What you want to be doing is doing things that are creating new mental connections for you. Learning an instrument, learning a language, doing a new task, going, uh, reading something new, having to understand things new. So even conversations can do this when you're really trying to put things together or you learn something new. Coming here today, right? You're putting new connections together. You're, you're relating what I'm telling you to things that you knew before. You're laying down new tracks. You're going to recall some things, tell it again in a conversation. That strengthens the connection. And what you really want to be doing is be making more connections because there is this phenomenon in Alzheimer's disease called cognitive reserve. And this is a, a real phenomenon that, that's been researched that we know of. So cognitive reserve is um, a phenomenon of people who have spent their lives really being curious and learning a lot. So they tend, so the marker in research are people with advanced degrees. 
but you don't need an advanced degree to have cognitive reserves. Just people with advanced degrees tend to be those types of people um, where they're always learning things throughout their life. So people with a high cognitive reserve, when they have Alzheimer's disease, they, they don't show the symptoms well into the disease, they don't show the symptoms to the same level that someone else with the same level of pathology in their brain does. So it's protective in that sense. The, the idea here, if we think about the plaques, if you think about the plaques in the brain as traffic jams, right? So there's all these brain cell connections. They're all connected and the plaques are traffic jams. Someone with a lot of cognitive reserve has many ways to get around that traffic jam. Right? Someone without a lot of cognitive reserve comes up against that and can't get around it, so then you have a deficit. You have a, you have a hindrance in your thinking and your processing. Does this make sense? So that's the, that's the idea behind cognitive reserve. So if you're going to build cognitive reserve, you need to be learning a little bit. If something is really easy for you, it's probably pleasurable and you should still do it because if it's giving, bringing you pleasure, it's reducing stress, and that's great. Um, and just having pleasure is good anyway, <laughs> right? But if you're thinking about for mental learning, you need to make those connections. You need to be learning, laying down new new tracks. Were you going to say that was that was brought out in that uh, movie? This was a, uh, early onset. Okay. And the difference in this movie and some of the other movies is that this is from the perspective of the patient, like not the family. Yeah. And uh, she was a really high-level uh, professor. Yeah, and PhD that sounds, or something. Yeah, yeah, that sounds familiar. It's a just familiar. Alice, or it's still Alice. Yeah, was yeah. it book on that? Yeah, there's a book there too. Okay, but it's it's one of the best ones that I have ever yeah. seen. Yeah, I'll look it up. Okay, so that's the um, our talk. Today, let me just summarize the brain health strategies: exercise, follow a heart-healthy diet, be curious, keep learning, do new things, go new places, talk to new people, stay socially engaged. We all do better when we have people in our lives, when we're related to people, and we have good relationships. Everybody does better than that. Um, isolation is is a is associated, particularly with older adults, is associated with a lot of different difficulties and, and health problems. Isolation is not good. So stay connected to people, stay related to people. And lower your stress, right? If you have a lot of stress in your life, figure out how to, to lower that, um, particularly chronic stress. If you have some acute stress because something's going on for a while, that, that's not such a, as big a deal unless it, it's really acute. But like chronic ongoing stress, so hopefully if you've retired, you've let go of a lot. People like me under chronic, chronic stress and I can't sleep, so I'm down in the NyQuil and then I can't think. <laughs> and then I'm under more stress at work. Um, so how do you lower stress? Exercise. Exercise is a good one. Getting good sleep is a good one. Um, having supportive relationships. Um, staying engaged with your interests and other people. Um, a good diet. And so and then, you know, making sure that if you have stress in rearing children, which fortunately I don't, or work, which I do, um, really locating that and trying to figure out, so this is a source of stress, probably my work is my biggest source of stress, so figuring out how to manage that. Do I need to let go of some work? Do I need to change my attitude? 
about work and you know, maybe meeting deadlines is not such a big deal. <laughs> I have that for your boss. Yeah, yeah, he might, yeah, I might sleep well, he may not. <laughs> Can I put a plug in sure. for Savvy Senior Exercise Program oh. at the Carter Community Witherall Center? Is that the CCB in Lebanon? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Savvy Senior. Savvy Senior. Oh, thank 50, you. 55 and over. Three of us or four of us in the class are over 80. Nice. And many are over 70. And how often is this? What, uh, Tuesday morning. Is today Tuesday? Yeah. Today's Tuesday. That's why I'm dressed like I am. Okay. And then <laughs> That's awesome. And Friday at 8 to 9. That's it's great. A, it's a wonderful program. It's, we move for about half an hour, just back yeah. and forth in this way and that way. Yeah. We don't do any up and down. And then we have half hour strength. We have bands and balls and whatever. Yes. It, it, it's really, you work at your own pace. Like yeah. I've been doing this for 15 years, but I'm getting slower. Mm -hmm. But I keep telling myself I'm there. Right, right. And it gets no, you cool. up and it gets you out. And then we go to McDonald's for coffee. <laughs> yeah, and the social engagement as yeah, well, yeah. staying mm -hmm. engaged. Yeah. That's important. Yeah. Um, things like Tai Chi. <clears throat> Yeah, tai Chi is good. Um, yoga, I go to yoga at the studio in White River Junction and, and there are some people there that are well aged and they're like they're like pretzels <laughs> still and I think, oh wow, if I keep doing this, will I they're very limber, um, able to do a lot. So different things like the that. The aerobic part is measuring that as to how long you need to be aerobic to have it. I mean I walk um, and I have PT, but um, mm -hmm. it's hard to know whether I'm really aerobic or not. I mean, yeah. I, there's a formula of some sort. There is. I don't. I don't know it. Um, might want to talk to your doctor or who is it? Is it PTs who who work with that or yeah? Um, Get her heart rate up. Yeah, different <laughs> trainers. I don't know what they're called. But like trainers that work at gyms. Um, I don't know what they're profession is, but they know that kind of stuff. Uh -huh. And how long? And how long. I mean, right. is it every day that you're supposed to be aerobic? Or no, no, it's more consistently throughout your life. So um, I think, I don't know, is it correct me if someone has heard differently? I think I've heard that you want to be walking like, a, like say, a half hour, three to five times a week. A week. Does that sound like what people have heard? Something like that. Four to five minutes. Exactly. I found yeah. that my dog was not a robot. Yeah. Yeah. So okay, so speed it up a little. Um, but you don't need to be you know, you don't need to be training for a marathon. It's just you know being brisk. You don't have to run more no. being brisk. Um, and things like yoga and tai chi because there's consistent movement, so you may not be jumping around a lot, but it can get the heart rate going, particularly because you're using big muscle groups. And that will take a lot of blood flow, and so that the heart will work harder. So it doesn't have to be like running, you know. It, it can just be just staying consistently active. Yeah. In terms of numbers, what I've noticed uh, when I was going to the CCBA, mm -hmm. uh, working out on the uh, uh, some of those machines there, you know, they have the numbers about so so many uh, heartbeats a minute and that mm -hmm. kind of stuff. And what I learned was that because I'm on blood pressure medication, mine will not go nearly as high mm -hmm. as the ones that are not on blood pressure oh, medication. So you have to be aware of that. Otherwise, I remember one uh, test that I had done, a stress test 
point stress test, mm -hmm. uh, they have forgotten to tell me that I um, needed to quit my hotel wall for a couple of days. Mm -hmm. And they just pushed me and pushed me and pushed me until I almost collapsed. Mm -hmm. And then the, when, I, when I had stress test a number of years later, they told me, and they didn't have to push me because they knew that um, it, went, it, it, it went up to the level because I had not been taking the atenolol. Right. So that yeah, was very important. Yeah. Individual, so it would be different for different people, what's, what's going to be strenuous and what's going to be markers of that. Um, and so this is a program by the Alzheimer's Association and there is a 24-7 helpline there. And I want you to know that you can call that number and you can get a free consultation, right? So the Alzheimer's Association gives free consultations to people. If you or anyone you know is living with Alzheimer's or any dementias, their name is, is a little um, confusing. They work with all dementias. You can get free <coughs> consultations from them. So if you just call the 800 num number and say, this is what I'm dealing with, I'd like to talk to a consultant, they can arrange that for you. Um, it's, a, it's a really fabulous service. They do different education programs, such as this one, but they do many others. They do a lot of caregiver coping skills programs that are very good. Um, they give their consultations, and then they're also involved in public policy and fundraising. Um, they, the Alzheimer's Association nationally, outside of our government, is uh, the biggest funder of Alzheimer's research. That's the, the primary part of their mission. Um, so they do a lot. And I encourage you to find out more about them. They're online, alz.org. Their um, website is its actually a little, I think it's a little busy <laughs> and can be complicated, but it's worthwhile visiting. There's a tremendous amount of information there on that. So thank you very much. Thank you for your attention today and for being here. Good to talk to you.